my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the trouble with Facebook. We'll be hearing in-depth from Kyle Taylor, author of The Little Black Book of Data and Democracy, the definitive guide to understanding social media. Before we do, just a reminder that there's no sugar daddy or offshore hedge fund behind this podcast. We're entirely funded by people like you, subscribers to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. So, if you like what you hear do head over to bylinetimes.com where you'll find out how to subscribe. And if you've already done so, thank you. Now, Facebook is the world's largest social media platform. It also owns Instagram, Messenger and WhatsApp. But it's come under fire from legislators on both sides of the Atlantic after internal documents known as the Facebook Papers were leaked by lawyers acting for former employee turned whistleblower Francis Haugen. The allegations include claims that Facebook was used as a platform to traffic domestic servants, that they bowed to pressure from the Vietnamese government to censor opposition voices, and that they continued with the like button on Instagram, despite their own research showing that it caused younger users stress and anxiety, presumably because when likes were hidden in trials, users interacted less with posts and ads. Then there's Facebook's role in facilitating misinformation, whether from political extremists or anti-vaxxers. When Haugen addressed MPs in the UK Parliament, she said a change in 2018 to the algorithms that decide what you see in your newsfeed encourage polarisation and ultimately violence. One of the things that happens in aggregate is the algorithms take people who have very mainstream interests and they push them towards extreme interests. You can be someone center-left, and you'll get pushed to radical left. You can be center-right, you'll get pushed to radical right. You can be looking for healthy recipes, you'll get pushed to anorexia content. There are examples in Facebook's research of all this. One of the things that happens with groups and with networks of groups is that people see echo chambers that create social norms. So if I'm in a group that has lots of COVID misinformation, and I see over and over again that if someone gives uh, COVID vaccine Uh, like uh, things they encourage people to get vaccinated, they get completely pounced upon. They get torn apart. I learn that certain ideas are acceptable and unacceptable. When that context is around hate, now you see a normalization of hate, a normalization of dehumanizing others, and that's what leads to violent incidents. Antigone Davis, Facebook's global head of safety, defended the company's record. I think uh, some very good evidence of how seriously we take these issues is reflected in our investment in this area. So we've spent $13 billion since 2016. We're on track to spend $5 billion in this this year. We have 40,000 employees who work on safety and security on, uh, on at Facebook. I think it's very important to understand that we have no business interests, no uh, business interests at all in providing people with a negative or unsafe experience. Our platform is designed to give people an opportunity to connect. Three million businesses in the UK use our, use our platform to grow their businesses. If they aren't safe, if they don't feel safe, they are going to use our, use our platform. Um, so, so we are fundamentally committed to these issues. To discuss the company, I've been speaking to Kyle Taylor, campaign director of the Pressure Group, the real Facebook oversight board, and author of The Little Black Book of Data and Democracy. What does he make of the evidence presented by Francis Haugen? 
I think what the documents that have been released through Francis Haugen show us is confirmation of what we've all sort of been saying for a very long time, because the root of this is just a big for-profit business trying to make as much money as possible. And I don't say that disparagingly. I say that as a way for us to understand why we need to solve them. So she used the term, I believe, meaningful social interactions. And one of the things I think is really important in these conversations is that we make this very understandable for people because it actually isn't that complicated, right? A meaningful social interaction is really about engagement. And engagement is just about trying to keep you on Facebook as long as possible. So it's not that these things are driving you inherently to more extremist content. They're driving you to stay on Facebook as long as possible. And what the algorithm has learned is that more polarizing extremist content does that. So Facebook's interest to keep you on as long as possible, to make as much money as possible, isn't necessarily in our societal interest of making sure people live in you know, a shared reality and don't think things that are totally untrue. So the root of all of this is emotional response, right? And I believe the stat that came out from her evidence is that anger drives engagement five times more than any other emotion. So what we see from extremist content is it makes people angry. And then the more angry they are, what Facebook seems to have learned is that the longer they stay on the platform, the more ads they can place, the more money they make. And so I like to call the algorithm sort of information neutral. Like it doesn't really care what's moving through as long as what's moving through is keeping people on. And that ends up being polarizing content. And because it's learning, the more extreme thing you look at, the more extreme thing it suggests. There was a report that they created their own fake person within Facebook and they had that person follow Fox News. And within five days, it was getting recommendations for QAnon. So they, they had their own research that showed them that what they do is drive people to conspiracies, but they didn't take any action. And I, people being confused by that is difficult because it's sort of like, well, of course they wouldn't. They're just a for-profit business. And the sooner we accept that reality, the sooner we can deal with the problem. You can't think about these tech companies. Google's slogan was don't be evil. Facebook's was connecting people. It sounds lovely. End of the day. They are beholden to shareholders, and that's it. So let's accept that fact and move forward from there. And when Facebook understands that extremist content makes people angry, let's just be clear about this. They're not angry at the people posting the extremist content. They're angry with the people who are identified in the extremist content as being problematic, as being other. That's a really important point to make as well, because sometimes people think that the goal on social media is to create conflict between two opposing sides. But that wouldn't actually drive a lot of engagement because you'd end up in long arguments. And ultimately what you want is you want to be angry and then you want everyone who agrees with you to reinforce your belief. So what the algorithm really does is it drops a nugget in. So, for example, if we're looking at right wing extremists in the United States, they'll drop a nugget in saying, oh, critical race theory is being taught in elementary schools, which it isn't. So that's not to then get those people in arguments with people who support the teaching of critical race theory. It's to anger the entire group. So they actually keep the groups in silos, but just drop in these nuggets to enrage. And what users and creators of content have learned 
is that they can make a lot of money doing that because there's a profit incentive as well to get clicks through to your website, to drive your own ad revenue. And so there's this whole cottage industry. I mean, we used to call it clickbait, but now it's really like click world, like baiting people into entirely different ecosystems of knowledge and how the world works. Then you end up with people who think genuinely that Hillary Clinton is running a satanic cabal of pedophiles and it's being operated out of a basement of a bar in DC that doesn't even have a basement that drives someone to go physically go there and shoot the bar up trying to free the children. So it's impossible to say we don't see the impact of these things, which is why we're now at the point, which these documents have shown us, that we cannot even assume that Facebook will ever even acknowledge the truth of what they've learned themselves, much less admit fault. And that's where governments must step in. This is the big tobacco moment for big tech. And part of the public stance of Facebook is that they don't wish to appear to be partisan. But that can mean then that they allow racists, insurrectionists, those who propagate disinformation to use their platform. Yeah. And, and the thing is, right, is th this word partisan has become like synonymous with the idea that two opinions are equally valid. What we're seeing in the, the sort of radicalization of people through the democratization of information, right? Like because everybody can go on Facebook and find anything they want or on the Internet as a whole, they end up in these places where they are radicalized to a point of view. And they've also been socialized to believe that their opinion about that is as genuinely valid as anyone else's opinion. But what we fail to remember is that there is truth, right? I mean, there are facts. And so the idea that you're partisan to opinion is very different than being partisan to fact. And I think that that's what Facebook's trying to get away with, saying, oh, well, we, we're, we don't want to appear partisan to opinion. Well, I mean, at the very least, be partisan to reality. <laughs> yes, as Peter Jukes, the Byline Times co-founder, has said on this podcast in the past, you are, of course, entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. Facts are facts. <laughs> yeah, and what I've said in my book as well, there's a whole chapter called Feelings Aren't Facts. How you feel about whether ice cream will give you diabetes doesn't change the fact that if you eat ice cream for every meal, you will probably get diabetes, right? There was even an instance referenced, I think, in the Facebook papers about staff drawing to Mark Zuckerberg's personal attention right-wing extremism on Facebook. And Zuckerberg did not challenge it, did not insist that it be taken down. So that's a really important point. And we see that time and again, and Facebook's own spokespeople like Nick Clegg have said, well, Facebook hasn't caused the polarization. People would exist anyway. Well, that may be true, but what Facebook has done is put them on rocket fuel. And in the United States, where only 10% of their users are actually globally, but of course they are based, their obsession is about avoiding regulation. And so you've got a Donald Trump in the White House and a conservative legislature, of course they're not going to silence the voices, no matter how insane they are, because ultimately they're looking out for their business interests. And so, yeah, here, here's some polarizing stuff. Should we block this? No, no, we don't want to upset Donald Trump. That's a terrible way to run an entity, especially an entity that 
impact society in the way that Facebook does. One of the areas that's caused greatest concern has been the propagation of misinformation, disinformation about COVID-19 and about the vaccination program. Now, if you go onto Facebook and you mention the word COVID, there will be a little flag saying, if you want to get more information about COVID, here's where to get it. And it will reference conventional health agencies like the NHS. But for a long time, Facebook allowed the propagation of quite dangerous anti-vaxxer information. Yeah, and we saw from these documents that there was a reference to a study they'd done internally that they found a way they could reduce COVID disinformation by 38%. So more than a third, pushing a half, half of all COVID disinformation, that Zuckerberg personally, according to someone who was recounting what he had told her to give the instruction, that it would affect engagement too much. It would affect their profit margins too much. And therefore, we're not going to do it. And again, here we are with the age-old problem. Their profit motive is not always in sync with society's interests. And even if you look at the broader situation, right? Okay, so when Facebook is even flagging their things, these things, they're directing them to established health authorities. The WHO, the CDC in the United States, the NHS in the UK. But we've just had five years of leadership in the United States and to some degree in the UK as well undermining established institutions. So if you take someone who doesn't believe that COVID is real to the CDC website in the US and the NHS in the UK, they're going to arrive there and go, oh, but you know, this is part of the deep state anyway. So this is all part of the giant conspiracy. And all it ends up actually doing is reinforcing their belief. At the core of Facebook's business model is data collection. And the observation has been made, isn't it, that we as users are in fact Facebook's product. Just unpack that idea for me a little bit. So Facebook is an ad business and their customers are advertisers. And as a user, you're not paying anything. And it's a really good sign with any product that if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product, right? What Facebook is selling is your attention your time to advertisers. And the way that they do that is through surveillance capitalism, which is co collecting as much data as possible on you so that they know your likes and your interests, but also other really, really creepy things like when are you using the platform? How long are you holding over different things? This isn't just Facebook, of course. If you look at Amazon smart speakers, I think this is a really good example. So people think, oh, you know, it's great. I can tell a speaker to turn on my lights. I can tell a speaker to set a timer. Well, that means Amazon knows when your lights are on and when they're off, what time you listen to music, how many times you snooze in the morning, and they're able to build this complex profile about your entire existence. Now think about the value of that to an advertiser. So if you're a distressed sleeper, let's say, and you're turning on your lights in the middle of the night, you're probably dealing with some anxiety issues, some stress issues, and definitely you're really tired. You're in a much vulnerable position to consume stuff. So let's shove more ads to you because we know you're up in the middle of the night. That concept isn't new. I mean, people will remember, particularly in the United States, that all through the night, all that was on TV were infomercials. Buy this cooker, buy this instant rotisserie, right? Because 
you're more vulnerable and likely to buy something in the middle of the night than you are at any other time of day. Well, Facebook's just able to now do that on a scale that doesn't even, that goes beyond just your demographics, like who you are, but really why you are. And I think that if you think about that, like, why am I the way that I am? Facebook knows that. There was research done that said, once you've done a hundred things on Facebook, likes, comments, shares, Facebook's ability to predict what you will do is often greater than yourself being able to predict what you'll do. And that harvesting of data was crucial to one of the the key cases, I suppose, that build up the argument against Facebook being allowed to continue as it is. And that was the Cambridge Analytica case. I know that some people will be really steeped in this story who listen to this podcast. Other people will hear the words Cambridge Analytica and think, oh, no, it's too difficult. I can't get my head around it. It is actually quite a simple story at heart, isn't it? Yeah, it is quite a simple story, and it's a good opportunity to remind people because something else that's happened with these documents is there's also this effort to suggest that 2019 onwards is the only time bad stuff was happening at Facebook Um, because her documents go back to 2019. Well, of course they do. That's when she worked at the company. But this stuff's been going on at Facebook for time immemorial. Cambridge Analytica, root of that was an academic built an app where you played a game on Facebook, my digital me or my digital life. From that, it got access to all of your Facebook info, but also without consent, all the Facebook info of all your Facebook friends. So that was taken without those people's consent. They didn't know it was happening. Cambridge Analytica then used that data to build out profiles of roughly 87 million people. But here's the thing about that number of people. There are only so many people types in the world. So with a data of 87 million people, you can probably profile most people. And so that's the key to unlocking everyone on earth, their likes, their interests, what motivates them to do something, to think something, to act a certain way. And so that gave them the ability, for example, in the 2016 U.S. election, to profile every person in America. And that's the power of this, because the other thing about stealing data is... It's not like stealing a car, right? You steal a car, the car was here, now it's there. You steal data, it's replicated instantly an infinite number of times. It exists everywhere and nowhere simultaneously, and it can be used by people, again, without your consent. But what we fail to sort of associate with our digital existence is the idea of ownership over it. Because we've been socialized into this model of social media where the product is free, And therefore, whatever else happens, at least the product is free. But the how you're paying for it is your entire digital identity actually being owned by someone else. People may not know that, you know, if you post a photo on Instagram or Facebook in those T's and C's, they own the copyright to that photo. And what do they do with those photos? Well, they profile the photos to try and build predictability models about who's in an image. What happens if they decide to sell that to a fascist regime or in the UK, the home office, so that it can be used in a variety of ways around crime and justice. You know, but it starts at this place of there was no starting point of your online life is your property in the same way that my phone is my property, my home is my property, my desk, every physical object. And we have to disassociate that intangibility with its value to each and every 
individual person. And in the case of Cambridge Analytica, we know that this data harvest was used to target Facebook users by President Trump as he became ahead of the 2016 presidential election. The data was used by the Republican Party. And I mean, I believe that there were over 100 Facebook paid staff even embedded in the Trump campaign, helping them use the data to better target. I think it's a really important point because this was used without people's consent, number one. And what did they use it for? Well, they used it to figure out how they could get people to vote for a certain person, what, even if it wasn't Trump, to change the outcome in a state-by-state basis. And so all of that was used to drive the outcome of the 2016 election, all without people's consent. So people were unknowingly helping Donald Trump become president. And there's no way, really, of unpicking that influence, is there, or of calculating precisely how that might have influenced the outcome of that election. It's difficult to calibrate it, but we can reasonably assume that it did happen and that it did have some influence on the outcome of that election. This is one of their own tactics in their playbook is to create this suggestion that it's not possible to measure the impact and therefore it's a conversation not worth having. Now, I I obviously fundamentally disagree with that because we're seeing again and again that role of data and the role of social media in changing society and political outcomes is consistent and regular and happening over and over. And what I also like to remind people of is what's been the biggest change to the way we exist in the last 10 years? Social media. So it has to be playing a role. And I think it's equally dangerous to say it's the catch-all to fix all of society's problems. Of course, that isn't true. But we must accept that it's playing a role. And we must accept that the for-profit model of its function is the reason that it's playing a role. And so Cambridge Analytica opened our eyes to this, and it opened our eyes to the scale of its potential. And again, that was sitting in a landscape of this, as we were talking about at the beginning, this sort of information neutral, as long as it's driving engagement and profit environment where it doesn't care what it's causing as long as it's keeping you there and driving you to click ads and make the company money. Yeah, and this idea of neutrality, of non-partisanship, I find really interesting as somebody who's worked in the media for all of my professional life. Now, clearly, Facebook is not an editor in the traditional sense of that word, but neither can it reasonably seen as entirely neutral when it engineers algorithms which identify your tastes and then provide content tailored to those tastes. That is a form of curatorship. It is a form of editorializing, surely. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think there's, there's, so one thing that we learned from this, the leaks as well, is that Facebook was pushing pro-Facebook stories into people's news feeds when the press was getting very bad. And that was an active human choice. So they are playing an editorial role to really push propaganda, right? But the second piece is even more extreme because, and I find more dangerous, as you say, that algorithms play an automated editorial role. And why is that more dangerous? Well, one, there is no human, as you would in a newsroom, saying, well, what is a universal 
story that everyone should know. You watch the 6.30 or 10.30 BBC News, and you're going to get the main stories of the day irrelevant of who they impact. One, there's, there's none of that universality to it. And I think that that's very dangerous because it breaks down that shared reality. But two, where's the liability? With human editorialization, we know where the decision was made to publish something. But on this, it's liability-free. It's sort of similar to Uber having self-driving cars. What if one of Uber's self-driving cars kills someone? It's not compatible with how we understand law and justice. And it's a great scapegoat to avoid any liability by simply saying, oh, well, it's an algorithm. It's driven by what people are interested in. We're just there to you know, push it through a system. <laughs> We're just facilitators. <laughs> but again, I come back to this central contradiction that the algorithms, by existing really, must push users in one direction rather than another. That's editorializing. <laughs> again, it's one of these things that, you know, is so straightforward and so much about Facebook's problems is very straightforward. We've been told that, it, you know, there's this mythological tech industry and just leave it to us. But in actual fact, it's a for-profit business that editorializes. There's nothing else to it. So they have power, money, and influence. It's a money-making business which has, amongst other things, according to these leaks, been used as a platform to traffic domestic servants. It's been lent on by the Vietnamese government to censor opposition voices. And it's a for-profit business, which has recognised that the like buttons on Instagram cause stress and anxiety, particularly to younger users, but which has decided not to remove the like button, presumably because they recognise that the like button drives activity, drives people towards the ads that they ultimately make money from. Yeah, let's take those in turn. So starting in the last one. Yeah, the like button is about dopamine, right? The dopamine is the thing in your brain that makes you happy and gives you energy and joy. So each little click of that like button is like a microdose of dopamine. So they can't get rid of that because that's keeping people going back for more. You know, it, it's, it's built on addiction. The first piece around human trafficking, I mean, I, I believe the stat in the leaked documents was on average 24 people a week trafficked through Facebook. Now, that is deeply troubling. And, and I know in some countries there are provisions for aiding and abetting of human trafficking. So where is the liability for people who aided and abetted knowingly human trafficking through their company? And in terms of the teens, right, so the data showed a third, one third, they knew one third of teen girls were getting body dysmorphia and body issues because of Instagram. And in their own defense, Nick Clegg wrote that it's only 1% of teen girls who have suicidal thoughts from Instagram. Only 1%? You're like fine with that statistic? That's horrifying. And you know that? On Vietnam, you know, we see this time and again. Vietnam is a great example where they helped the government suppress the voices of human rights activists. But we're, we've seen in Ethiopia, we've seen in Myanmar with the Rohingya genocide, which Facebook admitted they helped facilitate. We saw in Kenosha in the U.S. with Black Lives Matter, where people were shot and killed, which Mark Zuckerberg called an operational mistake. And the worry 
I think from, you know, as, as someone who's been working in this activist space for years now around what do we do to solve it, is the scale of the problems and the scale of the stories will almost normalize the harm and lead to a backlash where we don't act because we, we simply become unaffected by the grievance and the harm because it's so consistently terrible. And we don't need any more evidence. You know, we don't need any more inquiries, committees. We need action. Like, it is time. What more do you need to know to say, this is harming our health. This is harming our society, our democracy. Uh, and it is detrimental to not just individual human lives through trafficking, through suicide, to genocides, but to humanity itself. We have a climate crisis. We have one planet where we can live and if we aren't able to live on it anymore, it's kind of a big, huge problem. Now, what social media has done is create this amazing place to stir uncertainty around it. And we know that Facebook makes money from fossil fuel companies spreading climate misinformation and disinformation through ads in the millions, if not tens of millions of dollars. And also we know that climate skepticism is an extremist thought that will drive people into deeper rabbit holes about this. And so when we say that this is like a special threat at present. This is not an exaggeration. How susceptible is Facebook to foreign agents who want to undermine Western democracy? I think we only have to look as far back as recent elections, 2016, 17, 19, to see what foreign governments have learned, which is it's very easy to use our liberal democratic institutions against us. So just free speech. So because there are no limits, air quotes, like the idea of censorship is this big red flag. And by no means, we're looking primarily at non-content based solutions to fixing Facebook. So change the incentives, change the architecture. But what governments like Russia and China have learned is that they can co-opt those very easily and very cheaply. And often people think, okay, so their goal through social media, and just to say 17 U.S. intelligence agencies concurred that Russia was attempting to impact the 2016 U.S. presidential election. All 17. So this isn't, again, like a big debate. Like These are legitimate CIA, FBI, so forth and so on. So it's cheap and easy. It's much easier and much cheaper than building more nuclear weapons or hypersonic missiles. People misunderstand the objective. People think that Putin has an agenda in the U.S. The, the agenda is chaos. The agenda is creating dysfunction because it's all about relative power, right? So why does Russia have an interest in the U.K. leaving the EU? Well, the EU is a much stronger entity than Russia. But Russia could take on the U.K., Germany, Italy as separate actors. So start what they're hoping was start the fall and lead to the breakdown of Europe. In the U.S., just create chaos. Have people so angry at each other that they cannot function as one society on an international level. And so they're very easy. And again, you know, what's Facebook doing? Well, they're going, well, we're making money. It's not like Facebook doesn't operate in Russia. It's not like Facebook is taking any moral stance on freedom of expression or human rights anywhere in the world. So it's very rich to say, oh, well, we're very concerned about the use of Facebook to undermine elections, when on the other hand, they're taking money in these countries and generating revenue from regimes that oppress their own people. In 2018, Facebook created its own oversight board, didn't it? Which is 
comprised of experienced journalists to ensure that there was some oversight at least and to ensure that some controversial posts would be moderated more effectively than they have been in the past. So in 2018, Facebook announced that they were creating what Nick Clegg called their own Supreme Court. It didn't actually, quote unquote, launch until 2020, after the US presidential election. There are people on it that are highly respected globally, right? Former Prime Minister of Denmark, former Editor-in-Chief of The Guardian, But what we see if you go one layer deeper is it's funded by Facebook, its bylaws were written by Facebook, and its remit is so narrow, it is incapable of dealing with the structural problems. It's focused just on content. And I believe their recent privacy report that they just released said they've made over 30 content decisions. 30? This is a platform that has hundreds of thousands of times that much content generated every minute globally by 2.8 billion people. And it seems to be more a PR exercise to give the illusion of oversight to avoid actual regulation. And again, in their privacy report, their own oversight board said they did not supply us with the documents we asked for. They did not provide transparency around the questions that we sought answers to. And they cannot make policy change requirements. They can just make policy recommendations. Does that sound like oversight? I mean, to me, it, it sounds like using the reputations of people as political cover while you continue to do terrible, terrible damage to society. It shouldn't be allowed to carry on and people shouldn't look at it and say, this is great. I mean, this is like big oil creating their own oversight board to decide where they should drill offshore. Well, you know, the Exxon Mobil board said it's fine for us to drill in the Gulf. So uh, we're going to do it. No. Hence, you've created the real Facebook oversight board, a campaign group to argue about the points that you find most contentious around Facebook. At the heart of this company, though, is its founder, Mark Zuckerberg. And unlike many of these giant corporations, Mark Zuckerberg still retains effective personal control of the company. Why, in your view, is that so dangerous? So Carol Podwallader founded the Real Facebook Oversight Board, and I'd like to say one of our our members won the Nobel Peace Prize just two weeks ago, Maria Ressa. And it was for all the reasons that we've just discussed. That was for advocating free speech in the Philippines at, at some personal risk. Exactly. Free speech in the Philippines at her own personal risk. Um, she shared it with a, another journalist in Russia as well. It's an important time for, for these issues to be at the forefront. To get to Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, first, he's both CEO and chairman, right? Talk about marking your own homework. Second, he controls over 55% of all voting shares. So even though it's a publicly traded company, even if every other voting shareholder agreed, he could outvote them. Now, that is just bad governance full stop, especially for a publicly traded company, because the conflict of interest is obvious. He has a a business interest that could stray away from a governance interest, left, right and center. And it seems to me now that we know through these documents that he was personally aware of a lot, if not all, of these problems 
that it's really not tenable for him to remain as both CEO and chairman. I mean, it, in what world does that seem like, oh, great, sure, maybe next time you'll get it right. You had all the information. And if your only reason to act would be because people were watching, that, that says to me you have some morally fallible value systems to begin with. And maybe we should be demanding better of a leader of a company that has this much power. I think it's safe to say that Mark Zuckerberg is the single most powerful person in the world right now. He has the ability to influence 2.8 billion people every day through his suite of companies with absolute power of decision-making. That sounds more like an authoritarian dictatorial regime than anything else to me. And that's twice as many people as the population of China, just to give people a sense of scale of this. And as you know, information is power. And if you're controlling how people get information and what information they get, that puts you in an extremely powerful position that government should be much more wary of. So what is to be done then? Legislators on both sides of the Atlantic have been hearing testimony from Facebook executives. The UK is proposing an online harms reduction bill. In your view, what do we need to do to tame Facebook? I think we need to create statutory government regulation and oversight focused on three things, transparency, monitoring, and deterrence. Right. So that transparency piece is around saying, okay, you've got to show us the details of how your system works, not just a duty, but a requirement to do that. The monitoring side, I mean, that's about setting benchmarks through a duty of care, through specific rules around how they report and to who. That's based on the principle that they're probably not telling us the truth. What the evidence has shown is that they cannot be trusted. So people say, oh, well, let's look at their report on human rights in India. And it's like, well, I don't really care what their report on human rights in India on Facebook says, because we know they don't tell us the truth. And then that third piece of deterrence, we have to make it so untenable to break our rules and standards that they simply do not. And if they do, they are fined or potentially criminally pursued in a way that ensures they don't do it again. And when I talk about serious fines, the FTC in the US fined Facebook $5 billion. Facebook share price went up that day because shareholders that went, oh, great, that's not too big of a fine. Phew. We're, we're all, everything's fine here. You know, that's a problem. That's a serious problem. And so I think that this is where we need regulation to go, and it has to be government mandated. I think one of the biggest arguments against this that comes from free speech voices who say this will be censorship. And I would challenge that assumption because I, I would say that right now, your free speech on Facebook is decided by the company in its terms and conditions not by any rules or laws in our own societies. They're dictating the rules on speech and they aren't based on our values and principles. And we saw that in one of the first leaks, which showed they had a system called Crosscheck where over 2 million celebrities and big follower users were whitelisted. The terms and conditions did not even apply to them. Now, in, in a free and democratic society, all speech should be created equal. And we shouldn't be looking at the pieces of content themselves. We should be looking at their impact to cause harm in society. And I like to sum that up very easily by saying you have free speech, but you do not have free reach. You have no right to spread to 70, 80 million people 
the idea that one particular group is, as Donald Trump said, all Mexicans are rapists. You do not have an inherent right to spread that piece of information to 70, 80 million people. So we're not talking about limiting free speech. We're talking about limiting freedom of reach to protect society and the most vulnerable among us. Kyle Taylor, campaign director of the Real Facebook Oversight Board and author of The Little Black Book of Data and Democracy. This has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. It costs just £39 a year and it is a great read. And your subscriptions help support Byline TV, our brilliant newsbreaking website and this podcast too. So get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. And if you want to comment on this week's story, do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com or join the conversation on Twitter at bylinetimespod. We've also got Byline Radio coming soon. More details to follow shortly. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thanks for listening. See you next time.